0: Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be looking in verse 25, a message I call, As Christ Loved the Church. There we are, it's Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. that it should be holy and without blemish, as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5 is famous because of its discussion of the role of husbands and wives. Uh, God did not leave us in these areas or in other areas just to make up our own path or blaze our own trail or do things like we uh, feel like uh, it ought to be done. But God gave us some very specific instructions. And considering that when God started this thing called humanity, He started with Adam and Eve. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, And He started with the establishment then of a home. Uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, then it shouldn't surprise us that God has some very specific things to say to husbands and to wives. But as we look in this passage, even though he talks to husbands and even though he talks to wives, he makes it clear that the primary meaning of it all is about Christ in the church. Look at it, verse 31 For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. This is a great mystery of Christ and the church. Now Paul often used that language, spoke of mysteries and referred to a truth that had not been revealed in past time in the Old Testament economy, but now is revealed by the apostles and prophets. Uh, Marriage itself was not a mystery that had been clearly revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, the marital relationship between husbands and wives so that they can be fruitful and multiply. That was not a mystery. That was very clearly revealed in the Old Testament, uh, literally established by God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the words that Paul uses, even in verse 31 were spoken by God and then repeated by our Lord Jesus in Genesis 2 and 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Matthew 19 and 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together... Let not man separate. Jesus makes it clear God made us male and female. And He defines marriage very specifically within that perimeter and no other male and female. He was not ambiguous. He did not shuffle his feet and cast his eyes down and speak with embarrassment. No, he was very, very straightforward. You remember that God made them male and female. And God told them that they would become one flesh. And that they would be fruitful and multiply. And Jesus then said, what God has joined together. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Now, I've often been asked over the years, uh, over the last few years especially, uh, why it is that uh, Christian people in specific, Bible-believing people, uh, have such a problem with same-sex marriage. Uh, the, the reason we have a problem with that is what this passage very clearly says, what God has joined together, what God has joined together. When a man and woman come together in marriage, God joins them together. There's more to it than chemistry. There's more to it than their own personal commitment. God joins them together. I realize tonight that this is an incredible cultural battleground in America. So much so that our president, in his inaugural address... Even brought this up and pledged to affirm, uh, even uh, as young as an eight-year-old who is unhappy with his or her gender, who might need to try to change that somehow. And he affirmed that. Uh, We hear a lot about that these days. I never thought I'd be standing behind a pulpit and even mentioning it. We hear a lot about it these days. Uh, We don't hear how many kids go through all of the therapy and all of the changes, and then they're still unhappy and still miserable. I don't know if you've ever raised a teenager. They're miserable and unhappy most all the time. Doesn't matter what they get or what to do. I shouldn't laugh about it. It's really, this situation's not funny. Let me tell you something, folks. It's not going to go away. Uh, this is being pushed. It's an incredible push uh, in, our, in our grade schools, literally, high schools, colleges, are all laying siege on this simple truth God made us male and female. And He then joins us together in marriage that is designed for male and female. Marriage itself then wasn't a mystery. God set it up all along. The relationship whereby man and woman become one flesh in marriage, that wasn't a mystery. That that was there. God said that all along. But what was a mystery was that this whole thing of marriage, this whole thing of becoming one flesh, had a deeper spiritual meaning. That was a mystery. That this whole thing of male and female, husband and wife, one flesh, had a spiritual connection. That it illustrates then the relationship between Christ and his people, between Christ and the church. Biblically, this doctrine is spoken of as being in Christ. And I didn't give you a reference tonight because there are references to the believer being in Christ all over the New Testament. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, the Bible says, Uh, and and multitudes of other passages like them. But not only is the believer said to be in Christ, but Christ is said to be in us. Paul perhaps most famously said, uh, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but what? Christ liveth in me. So we have Christ in us and us in Christ. Theologically, we refer to this as a doctrine of union with Christ. And it was that that was a mystery. And it was that, that fact that marriage would be a picture of this, a figure of this. That there was a spiritual meaning, a deeper meaning, so that God would use this earliest of all human relationships, husband and wife, then to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and His people. It's no wonder that the devil has attacked this relationship the way that he has. Because God is using it and holding it up then to display that great truth Of the believer's union with Christ, whereby we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Now, Paul gives us some crucial teaching about this mystery earlier in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 3 and 9. He said that we need to, that God is making all men see. That that is, He's making something visible. And what is that? He's, He's making all men see then what is the fellowship of the mystery? which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. You see, another aspect of this mystery was that not only would believers be in Christ and Christ then be in us, but that was going to be for all believers, for all of them. It would be for not just for the Jews... But it would be for the Gentiles as well. It wouldn't be just for the male. But it would also be for the woman. That we would all be in Christ. And Christ would be in us. It would be for all believers. So that he would say that he has raised us up together. And made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Now that is the fellowship of the mystery. That we are one in Christ. But then Paul says, and this is a crucial passage, Ephesians 3 and 9, God has a place where He puts that fellowship on display. You know what that is? We don't have to wonder. It's right there in verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. God intends, you see, for us to be able to gather together in this place or in a place like this, in a church, And even if we were to meet out here uh, on the side, as we did for uh, so many times during the COVID time, it, it doesn't matter. It's not the building. We talked about that this morning. It's not the building that's important. It is the fact that we meet here that is important. We gather together then as a church. And when we do, we come together with so many differences. Uh, We're different people, different personalities, different socioeconomic status, different backgrounds. Some of us were raised in town. Some of us lived so far out in the country, we had to go toward town to hunt. I mean, some of us are country. Uh, Some of us are city. Uh, uh, Some of us are are business people. Some of us are, 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 are workers. We have all kinds of diversity, old and young, all points in between. And yet in the midst of all of this diversity, God puts something amazing on display. Fellowship. Fellowship. Well, the world would tell us that such a thing can't work, but it does work. It can work. The great mystery then of the believer's union with Christ of which marriage is a picture because the two become one flesh is put on display in the church through our fellowship. It is true that the Bible speaks to the people of God as a church, a gathering that will take place in eternity when He would gather us together in one and we would all be in one place and... There's not going to be all kinds of different churches and all kinds of numbers of churches in heaven. There'll be one fold and one shepherd. That's what the Bible tells us. And so even though the Bible does speak of the church in in that sense, its application to us now is is singular, and that is local churches, where God's people gather together. That's all there is in this world, local churches. And therefore, when we come together, we are expressing all of our great Christian responsibilities. We pray in church. We worship in church. We study scripture in church. We love one another and serve one another in the church. I'll admit to you tonight, it is absolutely, I don't have to admit it, it's absolutely true that some have placed way too much emphasis on being a part of the church or being a member of the church to the point that they would say that there's no salvation outside the church. Catholic doctrine very plainly makes that point. Refers to the church as a universal sacrament of salvation. And to this day, I just checked this week, uh, their official dogma still says that there is no salvation outside the church. And of course they're talking about the Catholic church, that is the only one they acknowledge you. I'll also have to admit to my shame that some Baptists have gone dangerously close to that. They'll, not, they'll argue with you and all that, but when you get down to the point where you say that uh, you, know, you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you're in the church, and some Baptists believe that way. Uh, folks, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you don't belong to Jesus Christ. They come dangerously close to coming uh, down on the same side. So if it is true, and it is true, that some people place too much emphasis on being in the church, it is also true that there is the other extreme. That there are those out to create a kind of churchless faith. And if one side is wrong, the other is also wrong. And in between is the biblical truth. Few passages in Scripture pull together such a strong discussion of all the things that Christ does for His church. As Ephesians 5. Jesus is certainly connected to and is very, very aware of everything that is going on in His churches. He showed us that in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20 when He described the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels, the messengers or pastors of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Jesus was moving among them and He was very well aware of all that was happening there. He would say to all seven of those churches, I know your works. (laughs) I know what's going on. I know what's happening. I know your works. Good and bad, he knew it all. Nothing was hidden from his sight." I would submit to you tonight that Jesus Christ is still today every bit as much aware of what's going on in Faith Baptist Church as he was aware of what was going on in Ephesus or Pergamus or Smyrna or Laodicea he knows us good and bad he knows all the good we do he knows what we're not doing that we should be doing he knows it all He's with us every time we gather together, including tonight in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We know this because He said at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And He promised His continued presence in His churches. We know He's here. And so if Jesus is here tonight, and He is if he is aware of what he is, then what is he doing? What is he doing here as we gather together in a church that maybe is not going on somewhere else? Well, there are several things in this passage that are specifically identified as things that Jesus does for the church. And the first one is uh, that he is the Savior of the church. It's right there, verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Jesus is the head of the church because he bought and paid for it with his own blood. Paul made that point in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. No lost person can become a member of the Lord's New Testament church. Now, you may think there might be some lost person that has his name on the roll. I'm not going to tell you that. There's probably several of those. But the fact is, if you're lost, you're not qualified to be a member of a church. You may think you're a member because you think you're saved and you're not. We may think you're a member because we think you're saved because we took your word for it. But ultimately, this operates under the truth of what we call a regenerate church membership. And that is that people must first be saved. Then they must then be baptized as a believer. And then they can be added to the church. That's the order that we saw demonstrated very clearly in Acts chapter 2. It's never been in question. But John did acknowledge that sometimes this doesn't always operate that way. First John chapter 2, and verse 19, he speaks of those who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. And this was in his discussion of the Antichrist influence that is in the world. And unfortunately, it has been, it always has been, that sometimes lost people, they think they're saved. They made a profession of faith. Some of them may do it in a sinister way. Uh, It's hard for us to imagine. But our enemy's crafty. and We can't put it past him to think that he might send somebody in just to act like they're saved when they're not saved. And they come in then to to wreak havoc in the Lord's churches. It's a hard thing for us to consider in America. (laughs) Let me tell you something. It's not hard for our folks across the pond to think of it all. When I was in Romania some years ago, and they talked about their years under Cunesco and that evil dictator, and how that he would send his people in to infiltrate the churches, to listen to the pastor's sermons back before, sometimes even to record them, uh, to get into business meetings and on committees and to record what all was being said kind of puts a different perspective on being a church member, doesn't it? Uh, Sometimes in, uh, according to 1 John chapter 2, because he was talking about that Antichrist influence, there may very well be people who would come in in a a sinister fashion, just deliberately to wreak havoc in a church. We may see more of that as time goes on. But most of the time, they would do so in a rather innocent way. That is, they think that they're saved. They, they maybe have good intentions. Uh, maybe they're trying to turn over a new leaf. Uh, they don't need a new leaf. They need a new life. And there's only one way to get that, and that's through Jesus Christ. Judas may have been the first lost person who thought he was a church member, but he was far, far from the last. We need to remind ourselves from time to time that sometimes people leave our church and quit going to church and they do it for a very good reason. They're not comfortable here. I'll tell you something, a lost person that tries to fit in here is going to have a hard time. (laughs) They're they're not going to like what they hear. They're not going to like our singing. They're they're not going to like these things. But ultimately, a church then is a local gathering or assembly of believers. We're called out from the world into the fellowship of which they're part. We should be mindful of the fact then that we are a blood-bought church. Christ is our head because He has purchased us. He purchased us at a great price. That makes this church precious to our Lord Jesus Christ. We preach the gospel here. We preach the cross here. We baptize people here. We observe the Lord's Supper here. We gather together for fellowship with one another in the church. We must ever, ever be mindful of how precious this all is. And what a glorious privilege we have here right now together with little fear of persecution. When we think then of what Jesus is doing in the church, let's remember Jesus is the Savior of the body. This is a blood-bought church. Then he tells us that Jesus loves the church. Church. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Not only did Jesus pay the price for our redemption with his own blood, but he continues to demonstrate his love for us as he continues to give himself for it. To us and for us. What kind of love then does Christ have for the church? I think Paul gave us a very good description of that in Romans chapter 8. Very familiar passage. But I'm going to read it to you anyway. Who shall separate us from what? The love of Christ. The love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet at all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus loves the church, and He manifests His love to us. When we gather together in the church, we gather in celebration and in practice of this glorious truth. Christ loves us. Christ loves us when we are in trouble, when we're in distress. He loves us if we're persecuted, or even if we're just picked on. He loves us when we're hungry. And a lot of God's people around the world are hungry tonight. He loves us when we don't have enough clothes and we're cold. A lot of God's people are cold tonight, shivering in their beds. He loves us when we're in danger, peril. He loves us even when we're at war. Jesus loves us. And though we may go through these things, and we do go through these things, there's one thing that He always assures us of. He loves us. When we think about how much of the Christian world right now is worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in fear of their lives, we wonder then, the persecuted church and so much of the Christian realm is existing in that way right now. What is it that would cause our Christian brothers and sisters in China to sneak through the dark of night together? Together. What caused our forebears, forefathers, for generations, hundreds of years, to hide in caves? catacombs to worship together. We imagine, we wonder how wonderful it is when we're gathered together to sing, but how would you like to sing when you know the soldiers might hear down the street? They might be singing at a whisper. Can you imagine what it was like for them To be in some situation where they were were free from fear. Where they could raise their voices and sing aloud without fear of anyone hearing. Why? Why have people for generation after generation after generation, even in trouble, even in times when they were persecuted, even when they were hungry, even when they were cold, even when they were in danger, even when they were at war and faced the sword? Why did they continue to gather together? We gather because of who Jesus is. And because when we gather together, we experience His love for us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11. John said, Beloved, if God so loved us, and He does, we ought also to love one another. That's where the church part comes in. We love one another. I've been your pastor now for seven years. and I have to tell you, I I really like most of you folks. (laughs) I love you. I do. I love you. Christ loves the church. And because He does then, we gather because we love one another. And we celebrate His love for us. He's the Savior of the church. He loves the church. He sanctifies the church. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself forth that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. You see, as believers in Christ, we spend the overwhelming majority of our time in a world that's filled with sin sin. In the Old Testament, when people came to the temple, especially if they had came through regions that were filled with people who practiced idolatry and unbelievers, they were required to wash, as in they washed in the pool of Siloam. They went through those elaborate ritual washings of all of them. Uh, they lived in a filthy world. And it, was, it had for them physical benefits, of course, but also uh, it was a spiritual symbol. Now, that carries over in the New Testament in this way. Uh, remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? Peter wanted to be washed more than just my feet. At, uh, John 13 and 8, Peter said to him first, You shall never wash my feet. Hmm. I tell you, you just got to admire Peter for his boldness, if nothing else. I mean, you know, what a bold thing to say. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well, Simon Peter changed his tune real quickly. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and feet. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. And John went on to tell them, he was speaking of, of course, Judas Iscariot, who was unsaved. This was a picture that Jesus was performing for them. Certainly, it had to do with his service. And if I, your servant, your master and Lord have done this, and you ought to do that for one another. But there was more to it than that. They were already clean in the sense that they were already saved. But the washing of their feet was a symbol or a picture of the fact that merely walking through this world, we're going to pick up a lot of things we need to be cleansed of. When we gather with Jesus in the church, Paul tells us that He, that's Jesus Christ, uses His Word to do this for us. He is sanctifying and cleansing us. Uh, You walk through a sinful world, you may pick up a bad attitude and not even know you got it. But when you come in this place and you get under the Word of God... Then the Holy Spirit's gonna go to work and He uses the Word to do it and He convicts you of that. Oh man, I need to deal with that. And He's just washing us and cleansing us. We may feel like Simon Peter did. Well, Lord, well, my hands and my head need washing too. I, I, I've done a lot of things I shouldn't have done. These hands have done some things they shouldn't have done. This, this head, I guarantee you, this head has thought some things it should have This mouth has said some. Oh, yeah, not, not just my feet. No, Jesus said, no, no, just your feet. We're just talking about that stuff that we pick up without even knowing it as we walk through the world. Jesus was giving him a beautiful picture about servanthood, but Paul here tells us that Jesus is still doing that. When we come together, then what Christ is doing in the church is he is sanctifying and cleansing us with the washing of the water by the word. I absolutely despise the times when it snows on Saturday and we can't have church on Sunday. I despise it. You say, well, preacher, you ought not feel that way. I can't help it. I've tried to preach to myself and tell me I'm getting a bad attitude about it, but, uh, you know, I, I despise it. It is awful to me. Awful when we can't come to church. You say, well, you were the preacher. Well, I understand that. I understand that. Y'all don't know what it's like to have a heart full of a sermon and nowhere to turn it loose at. I mean, you just feel like it's going to bust you wide open. It's awful. Nancy don't like it either because I usually unload on her. I love going to church. We need it. You miss church a week or two, you might find yourself with all of a sudden, you know, my, my, my attitude is just really not good. I'm not being very nice. My temper is getting out of control. My tongue, oh man, where did that come from? Well, let's talk about what Jesus does, us, does for us in church. You see, He's our Savior. We come together as a blood-bought church, and we come together and celebrate the fact that, that we are saved. We're believers in Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He saves us. He loves us, but He's also sanctifying us by the washing of the water of His Word. Then Jesus glorifies the church. Verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. That language, spot, wrinkle, holy, unblemished, is all tied to the Old Testament sacrificial system now, Jesus is certainly sanctifying us, but the whole matter is that He makes His church. He's working so that we would be an acceptable sacrifice. Remember that famous passage, Romans 12:1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, part of the reason why we come to church, part of the reason the things that God is doing in His church is He is making us holy and acceptable to God. Don't you want your service of God to be acceptable? Don't you want your life To be pleasing unto Him. That's a part of what we do here. Lastly, Jesus nourishes, nurtures, and cherishes the church. Nurturing and cherishing is essential to our well-being. When we gather together with Jesus in His church, we experience this. As the Holy Spirit works to make us feel the true nature of Christ's love for us. We're nurtured. We're cherished. We don't get this from one another, folks. We don't even get it from the preacher. We get this from the Holy Spirit of God. It's part of what He does when we gather together. He doesn't just love us. He cherishes us. He nourishes Very tender language. See, this is what you miss when you miss church. You begin to feel estranged. Left out. So, away from church for a while. You come back and you say, hmm, this place just don't seem the same. It's not the same. And neither are you. You miss church for a month, a year, two years. You're not the same. Anymore. We're not the same church anymore. You may even feel estranged and isolated, even cold perhaps, in your own relationship with God because you develop a sense of isolation. God didn't intend for us to live that way. When we gather together, then Jesus nourishes and cherishes church. You know, I've been thinking a lot recently about um, revival, about renewal, about how uh, we all need revival in our land, revival in our country. And I had to come to grips with the fact just recently, I began to think about it, you know, here we are praying for revival, but there, there's a whole lot of people in this country that don't want a revival at all. They don't want a revival. We talk about a revival that I see churches flourishing and filled to overflowing and, and see communities changed and lives transformed and our nation turned back to God. Uh, that's the furthest thing that a lot of folks want. I don't, they don't want that. We see all the effort put into trying to to push churches down and push away. Do Do they really want to see us revived and flourishing again? No, they don't. No, they don't. But I'll say to you tonight, as I've said many times before, in all the history of Christianity, there has never been a churchless revival. All of the great works that God has ever done. He has done starting in places just like this. He has worked through us and used us. I've given my life to the service of God's church. If God give me another dozen lives or so, I can't imagine a better thing to do. Uh, Not that he would. You understand, that's just a hyperbole. If God had given me a thousand years, I, I would love to spend it pastoring God's people, preaching his word. It's a wonderful thing. I love the church. I believe y'all love it too. You wouldn't be here tonight. If you love the church. and We need to, to pray then tonight as we talked about this morning. And I want to challenge all of you and me. Let, let's pray. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of our folks in a couple of years now. Some we may never see again. Got a lot of folks who've just drifted away somewhat. <clears throat> Let's pray that God would rekindle our passion, our desire, our love for our church. Let's all stand together, please.